you. One of the things that, um, if you haven't been with us or you're or you've been with us a lot, uh, today we are going to continue in the book of Luke. And so one of the things I mentioned in the first service is that typically um, I, I try to plan out sermon series about a year in advance. And so I'm really good at paying attention to Christmas and Easter. I'm not so good at like Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. And no one really cares about Father's Day anyway. Um, but I'm not so good about that one. So that's really all I have to say about Mother's Day in, in the message. We will talk about uh, a scene from a movie called Mr. Mom in just a few moments. But but one of the things, have you ever been somewhere or someplace or some situation and, and maybe you knew you just didn't fit? Like you were the most overdressed person in a room of people that were underdressed? Or you've been the most underdressed person in a room of people that are overdressed? Or you've walked into a situation where you feel like you are the least qualified in the room or maybe you're the most qualified in the room, but either way you feel a little bit uncomfortable, Maybe it's in certain meetings at work or all kinds of other things. Uh, See, I think the temptation, if you're like me, is to ad-lib or kind of make up something that helps in that situation. So here's what I mean. Um, I like cars. I don't really know anything about cars, but I like cars. And so um, here's what I know I like about cars. I prefer a black one, although I drive a blue one, but um, I like them with four tires because that's kind of important to go anywhere. Uh, And that's about where my knowledge stops. So I'll be in a conversation with someone who's telling me about cars, and I'll act like I know what's going on for the first minute or two, and then they'll begin to say stuff, and it becomes pretty apparent to both of us that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Or if we're to talk about construction, like I don't mind manual labor. I'm happy to help you if you need manual labor. If you need technical, skilled labor, I am not your man. Because what happens is anytime we've had house stuff and someone's asked me questions and, and you know, hey, what do you, what do you want done here or there? Um, I usually respond this way. Uh, you need to call my wife. Because she knows what she's talking about and I don't. Um, sad but true. Uh, but, but often we'll kind of fake those things and we'll begin to try to, to make ourselves seem like we're something that we're not. Now, the truth is I probably have proficiencies in other aspects of life. If you want to talk about philosophy or theology or organizational leadership, I can probably talk with you in those situations. But that brings about another temptation, not to add something to who we are. But the other temptation is then to become something more than we are. And so then we try to be the smartest person in the room. We try to make sure everyone knows we're the most qualified, that we are the most accomplished, that we're the person in this room who has the most to say on this particular subject. And so we move from the place of faking it till we make it to the place of we're just arrogant. And this becomes for us a difficult thing for us to know which end of the pendulum we may be swinging towards. And sometimes it's funny when people try to fake it. I mean, sometimes it's really funny when they try to fake it. And so I want to show a clip. Um, I want to show a longer clip, but there are a couple things in the clip I couldn't show in church. But, but this clip, I think, is really kind of good. And, and it's from a movie called Mr. Mom that came out, I think, the year I was born. Uh, don't quote me on that. But, but in the movie, um, Michael Keaton's character has lost his job. He's an engineer for a car company in Detroit, and he loses his job. And, and he um, is home, and so his wife gets a job because she got a job before he he found one, and so her boss shows up at the house in a limo, wearing his suit, and Michael Keaton's in his bathrobe, and so he's thinking, this doesn't look good, so I need to look manly, and so he, he goes outside, and he changes clothes, and he comes in carrying a chainsaw um, to try to prove something, and here's where the scene picks up. I'm sorry, pal. No problem. Come on over here, Ron. Let me show you what I'm doing. Taking advantage of some of the time off to uh, 
add a whole new wing on here. I'm going to rip these walls out and, uh, of course, rewire it. Yeah, you're going to make it all 220? Yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. Well, you sound like a pretty handy guy. Yeah, well, I like to do a little bit of everything. Catch that. There's a line, and I, I found out, you know, that wiring goes 110, 220, 440. Those are your options. I'm not, I'm not going to admit whether I knew all of that before the first service or not, but, but that's how that goes. And so I love this scene because he's showing how masculine he is, and he's going to rewire his house. And he goes, oh, so what are you going to do, 220? And he goes, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. I love this line because that's kind of how we live often. We don't know what in the world we're talking about, but we make it seem like we do. See, the truth is, who he was, there was nothing wrong with who he was. He was a guy who was trying to provide for his family who lost his job. And while his wife was working, while he was continuing to look for a job, he was taking care of his family. He was a guy who had an engineering degree. There was nothing wrong with him, but he felt this pressure to make himself, himself something other than who he was. And I think this is a temptation for many of us. We want to become something that we're not. Now maybe, I, I don't know about you, but the temptation is different in all of our lives. And I don't know what your temptation is, what your temptation has become. I mean, temptation is, is kind of a, in many ways, a personal thing. There are some obvious things that we all may struggle with in some way, shape, or form. There may be temptations for us. Maybe you have a tendency to lie about stuff. Little simple white lies, but they're lies nonetheless. So dishonesty is a temptation for you. Maybe for one of us, the, the temptation is lust. Because for most guys between the ages of 6 and 96, that's probably the biggest issue in their life. And they're usually dead after that. Maybe your temptation is that you like to take things that aren't yours. And so you just kind of snag stuff walking by and you kind of joke about that. But it's true. We do it in all kinds of ways. I mean, those are kind of obvious ones that we think about. But what if, what if they're ones that go deeper into the heart of who we are? What are the temptations about the very essence of our being that we begin thinking, you know, temptation, you know, I I can't avoid it, so I'm just going to jump in. But here, here, I think this is true. Temptation is totally unavoidable. You cannot avoid temptation. It is impossible. But you can avoid the sin that the temptation leads you to. Unavoidable temptation does not mean sin is therefore unavoidable. Because often when we begin going in directions that we're tempted to go, that take us away from God's desire for our lives, we don't ever fully grasp the desire that God has for us. Our heart can become hardened. It can begin to be bent in different ways. We don't love well. We begin to, don't care for people well. But the good news for us is Jesus himself was tempted. Now, that doesn't necessarily seem like good news, right? I mean, like, oh, okay, good. Glad if that guy who's supposed to be the son of God, who's supposed to be perfect, if he's tempted, I'm sure I'm going to be just fine. But see, the only reason we know the story of Jesus' temptation is because Jesus himself told his followers the story. And the story that we're going to read from Luke, Luke records the story that Jesus went off by himself in the wilderness to pray. Now, there's no way we would know what happened when Jesus was by himself if he didn't tell other people. So the point for that and us is this, that sometimes it's okay for us to share our temptations with one another. Because part of how we overcome temptation is by acknowledging that it's real and not trying to push it aside and think it's fake. 
And so we're going to read from Luke chapter 4, and I'll invite you to stand as we read from Luke chapter 4, the first 13 verses. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him into Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, if you weren't with us last week, I kind of need to catch you up because this text doesn't make any sense if you don't. Um, we're, we're going through the book of Luke, and, and so Luke was this Greek doctor who wrote about the story of Jesus and what happened in Jesus' life because it changed Luke's life. And so Luke gives us these words. And, and so last week he told us about how Jesus went out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist. And John was actually his cousin. He was out there baptizing people, and they were repenting from the sin in their life and turning towards God. And, and Jesus goes up to John and says, John, will you baptize me? And John baptized Jesus, baptizes Jesus. That's hard for me to say. John baptized Jesus. And Jesus, when he's coming out of the water, he's praying. And there's this moment where it, it says the heavens opened. And a voice from heaven, the voice of God, said to Jesus, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So we talked last week how God so desperately wants us to know that in those moments of baptism, in those moments when we're present with him, in those moments of prayer, he says to us, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus has this euphoric spiritual moment. I mean, it's this kind of spiritual high, and, and it's a moment that he couldn't quickly forget. And, and it's so true in our lives. So often we have these kind of euphoric moments with God, these moments where we sense his presence, and then it's not long after that that we find ourselves tempted in some way. And so Jesus, led into the wilderness, he's led by the Spirit that isn't the Spirit that tempts him. See, God often speaks to us in moments of silence and solitude, and it doesn't happen in our everyday routines. I was talking with a, a young person in our church this week about um, how to spend time with God, and I just said, you know, the truth is you're never going to be less busy than you are today. He looked at me because I was crazy, and I said, I'm serious. You will never be less busy than you are today until maybe you retire, and then I don't know. But I mean, like, at least I can speak from now until at least my age. You're not less busy than you are today. And so if you really want to spend time with God, you're going to have to set aside some time. You're going to have to get up a few minutes early or stay up a few minutes later. And I said, my recommendation is getting up earlier because if you're like me, you're just going to fall asleep at night anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But the point is this, that God speaks to us in these moments of solitude, when we take a break from our daily routines, when we set aside time. And so in this moment, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he fasts. 
Now, maybe if you've read the Bible much, there's some things that jump out at you when you hear the 40 days. You go, oh, wait, wasn't um, Moses was in the, in the wilderness for 40 years before God called him to go back to Egypt? Oh, yeah, that's true. And didn't the Israelites, they wandered for 40 years after they had left the slavery of Egypt in the wilderness? Didn't they wander for 40 years? Yeah, that's, that's true, too. So there's something about this 40 that's the shaping kind of time. And so Moses was shaped in the wilderness, and the people of Israel were shaped in the wilderness. And here's why. For us to be transformed from who we have been to who God desires for us to be, it often takes time. And so we see that the, the Israelites had left Egypt, but Egypt represented some kind of broken things in the world. It represented power and oppression, slavery, consumerism in terms of money and wealth. I mean, it, it kind of represented everything that the world had to offer, all the principalities and powers of darkness, all that empires may have. And so in the wilderness, it wasn't so much that the Israelites had to leave Egypt, but they needed to get Egypt out of them. And so Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and, and I've had a couple friends who have fasted for 40 days, and they talk about how hungry you are by the time you get to the end. You do pretty good with it, but about that last week, they said, is the worst of the whole thing, really. It's the first few days, and then the very end is the hardest. And so Jesus is hungry. I love the, the words of Luke. He's like, well, you know, he's fasting in the wilderness, and he was hungry. Yeah, no kidding. I'm sure he was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. I'm lucky to go like 45 minutes without wanting something. So, I mean, I get this guy is hungry. And so the devil came to him and offered up this temptation. Hey, you're in this barren place in the wilderness and everything would have been kind of the color of bread. And he says to Jesus, you know, you could, you could make that rock bread. And then Jesus quotes some scripture says, man doesn't live on bread alone. A few minutes later, he takes him and says, see all the kingdoms of the world? If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all of them. Jesus again responds, I'm not, worship the Lord your God only. And finally takes him to the temple, the highest place of the temple, and he says, listen, I know who you are. You know who you are. We know what just happened there at the Jordan River. I mean, he just said, you're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. How about you jump off the top and watch God's angels? Because the scriptures tell you he's going to protect you. And Jesus responds, don't put the Lord your God to the test. See, these three scenes kind of follow the same pattern over and over again. It's, it's event, temptation, and response. And each time it's the same thing. You see, the devil offers up a situation, a place. He offers the temptation, and Jesus responds by quoting Scripture. Same thing each time. It's the scripture that Jesus quotes that becomes for him hope in these moments, and it becomes for him life-giving. And so it is this moment of temptation, this transformative work of God. And in these moments, there's really kind of three temptations that happen. The first one is, what's our appetite? What do we long for? What do we want to eat? What do we, and not just food, like, you know, what do we want to consume? Some of us love to shop. Maybe some of you really do like cars, and it's kind of an obsession, we, we consume stuff. I mean, we can, there's like a whole TV series called Hoarders because we like to consume stuff. In fact, not only do we consume stuff, but then, then we have this temptation of power. I mean, the first one's about appetite. The second one's about power. And, and, and power, we think, well, I don't really have a temptation for power. Well, I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, because what we end up doing is we begin to, to make Jesus look like white, middle-class American who's probably Republican. I mean, that's what we begin to make Jesus look like instead of a first-century Jewish carpenter who represented sacrificial power and selflessness. 
And so we, we think, well, I don't really like power. So we try to get control. I mean, we do, maybe we have control in our homes. We want to control our spouse or our kids. We want to control our, our boss or our employees. We try to get control because it's really about power. And our temptation is power in some form. And you say, well, that's not really my issue so much. Well, well maybe the third one is pride. Because third one's about pride because Jesus knows who he is. And Satan says, well, you're the son of God. Of course he's going to save you. And so maybe the temptation for us is pride. I'm really not that bad. I'm pretty good. I really am the smartest person in the room. I really am better than them. Whatever the temptation is, pride takes various forms in our life, and truth is the definition of sin probably is pride. Because we're proud of who we are. And the idea of letting go of any of that is really, really hard for us. So Jesus is tempted to woo people. That's what this last temptation really is about. And the truth is, I think that's a temptation of the church at times. Like, I, I'm going to say this, I, probably, I may not say this well, but um, sometimes churches, we try to, like, out Disney, Disney. Disney is way better at being Disney than we could ever be. We could never entertain as well as Disney can. It's impossible. Now, that doesn't excuse us not seeking excellence and trying to be great. That's not at all. In fact, if we don't do that, that's, that's a bad act of worship. We're supposed to seek excellence and try to be great. But what Disney can never be is authentic. It can never be real. It's always got to be imagined. But the church can become the place and the people who are authentic in their life, who are real in the very essence of their beings, who become people who, in relationship with one another, offer up these these temptations that we all wrestle with, that we go through, and we can offer hope to one another in ways that matter. So all throughout this temptation of Jesus, he doesn't argue with the devil. He doesn't say, oh, that's not really a temptation. I don't really struggle with this. He doesn't even really give it a conversation. He dismisses it by quoting Scripture. It's a reminder for us that it matters to learn the Scriptures. So Jesus answers loudly, in these moments, whether his voice is loud or not, I know who I am. But it's the question we still ask, who am I? What's our value? Where do I belong? See, Jesus modeled his temptation, the rejection of power, the rejection of glory, and he accepted this idea that true humility is where we find true hope. And so Jesus doesn't use his powers to say, look at me, He says, look to my Father and watch the way that we'll change lives because of who he is. I mean, the passage ends by saying that that the devil will come back at a more opportune time at another time because this idea that temptation, we ever completely run from it, is impossible. Temptation is unavoidable. It comes no matter what we do in life. Temptation will always be a part of our life. The question is, how do we respond to that temptation? And that's really the question you and I have to wrestle with today. What's it mean for us? There are the obvious temptations that probably jumped in your mind when I began talking about temptation, but there's some other ones that I think we, we underestimate. And one of them is this. We, we know God wants us to become our best self, our better than who we've ever been, our transformed, renewed, in the image of Jesus self. And we say things like this when we think God's calling us to something more. We say, well, you know, I can't. Or I'm not good enough. We diminish God's ability to do the transforming work in our hearts and our minds and our lives. 
the other temptation is just as real. We say, I'm good enough. I'm better than them. We take the holier-than-thou attitude, which doesn't help anyone, especially ourselves. And we don't recognize that God can't use us in those situations. Instead, we should be asking these kind of questions. Am I following Jesus well? Am I being made holy? If we begin to live in those kind of questions, it changes some of our answers. See, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we fake it pretty well. But the world doesn't need a church full of people faking it. The world needs a church full of people who are real and genuine and authentic and recognize that temptation is a legitimate issue in our lives and we struggle at times, but we have to find hope together with one another. I see, I came across a story this week that I want to read because I thought it was kind of fitting on Mother's Day, but, but here's the story. Um, here's what it says. Darren wasn't sure why the Jacobson family wanted to meet with him. Darren's a youth pastor, by the way. But when both parents, their daughter Janine, and her boyfriend Edgar filed silently and grimly into his office, the pastor had a pretty good guess. Janine's parents had been pillars of the church for ages, so she was well known in the congregation. Her parents pressed marriage. At 18 and 19 years old, neither Janine nor Edgar wanted to marry right away, but they also didn't consider abortion an option. They talked about placing the child for adoption. After an intense hour, Darren scheduled a follow-up meeting with just Janine and Edgar, suggesting they continue their dialogue. The three met regularly to explore scripture and discuss its teachings about both marriage and parenting, just in case. During one conversation, Janine asked, what do we do when I start showing? Their pastor responded, why don't you tell the church? At first, both young people shut down this idea. Darren wisely let them sit with the question on their own. A few weeks later, the couple sat facing him again. Edgar spoke first. We want to tell you two things. First, we're getting married. Second, we want to tell the church everything. The whole congregation. Darren was surprised, but grateful. He was already on board with their plan. After an initial meeting with the church elders, who were incredibly gracious and encouraging, Janine and Edgar found themselves standing before the congregation that Sunday morning. They were nervous, but they were not alone. Darren stood between them, his arms around their shoulders, as the couple shared the news of the baby, as well as their upcoming marriage. The congregation surrounded them with support, not only in the moment, but also in the weeks and months to come. A surprise baby shower from their small group, a surprise wedding reception from the parents' small group. Reflecting back on that season, the pastor commented, no one wondered if supporting the couple would encourage other girls to get pregnant. People were just filled with gratitude to be part of such a community of grace. That gracious support extended to the baby boy who arrived a few months later. It also extended to others who felt safe enough to share their own secret pain and brokenness because of the way ministry leaders have loved Janine and Edgar. Two years later, Janine, Edgar, and their son are a vibrant part of this congregation growing young. When we visited, people shared the family's story as a marker of how the church embodies Jesus' message. Not a story of shame, but of redemption. Not a narrative of being cast out based on sin, but one of being embraced and restored. One parent of teenagers in the congregation reflected, here it's not all about being perfect. It's what we love when we were looking for a church. We said, our kids are going to screw up. How are we going to be treated when they do? We want our kids to be in a place where God's people say, okay, you messed up. What now? 
Not a place that says, you messed up and we don't know what to do with you. You might be better off someplace else. This in a congregation following Jesus earnestly today. The Jesus who did not condemn but set free. The Jesus who took what seemed broken and restored wholeness. The Jesus who invited followers into a life of discipleship that required sacrifice. The Jesus who embodied the fullness of God's unconditional love and unending faithfulness. See, I think one of the biggest temptations for each of us is the temptation not to change, to stay where we are. It means if we think the church is supposed to be the place that's perfect, then we probably have a bad idea of what church is. It means if we don't believe in a God who is gracious and allows us in our brokenness to be healed and restored, then we don't know who God is. It means that for us to recognize in these three temptations of Jesus, our appetites are what we consume and our desire for power or in our pride. That it is God who comes to us and says, yeah, I, I know that may be your temptation, but there's a way through that. There's a way to overcome that. There's a way that you can have health and wholeness and life to its fullest, and it is known only through knowing me. And it is Jesus who speaks those words to us in such a way that they give us life. That's that no longer are we defined by our temptations or by our sin, but we're defined by the love of Christ, seen in his death and his resurrection, which brings us new hope. And so this morning, I, we, we did a study a while back in some of our small groups. It was called Killing It. Um, it was this idea that... that pride or selfishness or power, that, that these temptations of ours, we can kind of just kill them in our lives. Well, we do this by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that dwells in us, that gives us the opportunity to overcome. And part of how we do that is through confession together. And recognizing no matter what we do, we cannot do it alone. And so one of the temptations for us is to not change, to continue to be who we have been. But God says to us, no longer do you have to be defined by your past, but you can be transformed by the work of, your, of the Spirit. And it is the same Spirit that we find in searching the Scriptures and God's presence with us. And so it is the same Spirit that gives us hope this day that changes us. Because temptation may be unavoidable, but sin can be avoided by the work of God's Spirit. And this morning, we're going to invite the priest to come back up and sing this song stronger one more time. Because this transformative work of God doesn't happen by what we do. It happens by what God does in and through us. And the challenge for you and I is to recognize in our moments of temptation that we confess them, that we share them with one another, that we're real and genuine and authentic. And at the same time, we recognize that we cannot overcome alone. Will you stand with me as we pray and as we sing this morning? Father, we thank you for this opportunity together today for the way you continue to be at work in our lives, for the way that you call us to something more, for the way that, that we really can't overcome temptation, for the way that in you we see the fullness of true love and that somehow through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus you offer us hope and healing and a new start. As I read the story of Janine and Edgar, this couple who, who made a mistake, a church who lovingly embraced them, called them to something greater and something better. 
May we too be the kind of church that invites people from broken places and situations. May we too offer hope and healing. And may we each recognize that none of us can avoid temptation, but together and with the work of your spirit in our life, it's possible for us to avoid the sin that so easily entangles us. And in those moments when we're not sure, may we be quick to confess, to ask for forgiveness, to repent, to turn from who we have been. And may we recognize that one of the greatest temptations of our lives is to not change, but to say that who we are is all you want for us and to not seek greater and excellence in our lives because that is what you call us to. So Father, we pray in these moments as we sing this song that we recognize that you are stronger than anything in this life that we may face, that you are near to us, that you change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is love that came for us